hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Sucker Time. The number one comedy podcast about comedy. Podcasts. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Marshall Hershon. Hi, Mark Hershon. How are you? Hi, guys. Yes, I'm still Mark Hershon, and this show continues to stubbornly still be Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. Those two guys you just heard from? That was Dean Haglin and Phil Larinus of the Chill Pack Hollywood Hour podcast, where the most recent mentions of Suckatash have been reduced to literally the last few seconds of their most recent episode. And that was just it, which means that CHH was our first clip of our Epi 60. 60 episodes! It's about time. Coming to you unlive from Studio F, the Studio P Annex, or my fiat. I have a few other comedy podcast clips for you, by the way, this time around, as well as our Bursto Durst with Will Durst. But the bulk of Epi 60 will be given over to my recent interview with Mark Price. Yes, that Mark Price, stand-up comedian since he was 14, an actor, a producer, and still most often recognized for the seven years that he appeared as Skippy on NBC's Family Ties. NBC saw the first Merv Griffin, thankfully, <laughs> and uh, and called me in. They groomed me a little bit. I, I got very lucky. They, you know, they were trying to find Mama's Family was a new show at that time, and they were trying to put me in that as the okay. kid. And I didn't get cast in that, and I was upset. Why didn't I get this? It would have been, you know, Carol Burnett. I really wanted that bad. But a few weeks later, uh, the family ties happened, and then from that moment on, I've always looked at Destiny differently. The ten most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List! I didn't do the ten most active in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List last show, Epi 59.5, because it was a special shortened show. But things have continued to slide around on that list without us, so let's take a look. At 28, Friday Night Comedy from BBC Radio is up seven places. At 37, The Champs with Neil Brennan and Moshe Kasher, up 27. At 44, Scarborough Country is down 12. At 51, The Comedy Mixtape, up 25. At 52, Off the Air with Chick McGee, up 14. At 53, The Bone Zone is up 9. At 79, Improv for Humans with Matt Besser, up 18 places. At 81, Smodcast F-E-A-B, or Feeb, down 30. At 82, Mike and Tom Eat Snacks, up 71 places. That's because they finally put out an episode after two months off. And I reviewed them just last week at Splitsider.com, so you can check that out as well. And at 98, the Tenderloins podcast is up 26. The 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. Hi, this is Tony from 763Pod slash 763Network, and you're listening to Suckatash. My interview with Mark Price is right around the corner, but first, let's do us some clippage, shall we? Now that 30 Rock is finished, I guess Alec Baldwin's podcast, Here's the Thing, is all he has left. That, and of course, Capital One commercials, which we keep seeing on TV. Must be nice. 
I'm reviewing this particular episode, by the way, of Here's the Thing, where his guest is veteran actor Stacy Keach for This Week in Comedy Podcasts up on SplitSider.com. Here's a taste where Keach talks about taking on Shakespeare's role of Falstaff when he was only 30 years old and the craziness of trying to star in a movie while commuting to Central Park at the same time to appear in the Shakespeare role. If you're playing, um, like I was just down in, in Washington, I'm going to do Falstaff again next year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's this big, fat, corpulent guy. And um, interestingly enough, even with all the physical manifestations of that character, that character, you you got to go inside. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, you know, and when it's I... It's not enough just to play the, the look. No, not at all. Not at all. When I first did it, it was back in 1968, I guess, 45 years ago. You did what in 68? Falstaff. And you, what, did they put a suit on you? Oh, huge. Just big. Yeah, you were a very lean guy. I was, yeah. you know, and, and I had to wear this big fat suit. Yeah. The only Aldridge designed his <laughs> leather costume for me. And and what did they do back then in terms of your face when you're lean? Whiskers. Oh, I see. Eyebrows. Right. Had a wig, of course, and a bulbous nose. And I was shooting a picture in... Uh, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, end of the road, with uh, James Earl Jones and Harris Yulin. I was shooting during the day and had to go on stage in the park at night. So I'd get in the car at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd drive down the Taconic. And, no. And I'd be making up in the car oh in the front seat as we... You were shooting a movie with Harris Yulin and James Earl Jones in the Berkshires, <laughs> and you would drive down to Central Park? Yeah. To do eight shows? It, well, to do with uh, the, the, oh, show. the park is in eight shows. Yeah, the park yeah, is like the, a five shows right of the weekend. Well, I guess so. Yeah, it was on we Thursday, didn't, Friday, two on days. They right. didn't do matinees, right. yeah. But nevertheless, it was an experience. I mean, you know, to be making up in the car and looking, you know, and buses would come up beside me, and I'd be, <laughs> you know, looking at it, look at you know, what this crazy guy doing there. But it was an experience. But anyway, um, I went and saw Orson Welles do Chimes at Midnight. One he did. In that film, I thought it was a great performance. He personalized that guy so much. It was like he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't put any spin on it at all. He was just talking right from his heart. I mean, it was right, you know, he was really centered on that guy. And I thought to myself, that's the key. I mean, you've got to find the equivalent of that for you when you mm-hmm. when you get in there and when you get inside the fat suit. You're going to have to find the personalization of that, you know. What was it about you? I was way you? too young when I played him. Well, I was going to say, what was it about you that back then when you were this athletic, yeah. lean, yeah. leading man in the movie business. You yeah. wanted to put a fat suit on. Why, why <laughs> were you running into the, why, why were you diving into a fat suit? Well, because, I, you know... It's, you wanted great parts. It's, exactly. And that is one of the, probably, I think, of all of Shakespeare's characters, I think it's probably one of the, you know, that and Hamlet are probably the two greatest, better than Lear, I think. I mean, it's a, it's a greater part. It's more, it's, there's much more going on with Falstaff, I think. You know, it seems Alec Baldwin has become pretty adept at doing an interview since kicking off his podcast. So check out some more at uh, WNYC.org, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Same as us, by the way. You can find Succotash on Stitcher Smart Radio, too. I saw the host of Defective Geeks, Gizzy and the Space Pirate Queen, a few months ago in L.A. at a show that Chris Gore from Podcrash was having at iOS. They seem like a couple of funny ladies, and their podcast is a little unusual in that two lady nerds who aren't afraid to show it let their geek flag fly. In recent Epi 118, they welcomed the creator of Super Knocked Up, which is a, a web series. Uh, the creators Jeff Burns, along with actors Jordan Gibson, 
who plays Dark Star, and Mark Pazula, who plays Captain Amazing. Super Knocked Up, as I said, it's a web series where a superhero and a super villainess end up hooking up, and he gets her pregnant. So we're... What what inspired the series? Like, where did this all start, and where did this all come from? Uh, my crazy mind. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it. Um, I was I was taking an online screenwriting course called ScreenwritingU.com, which is a really awesome course, and um, I just it came from that really. I was just uh, we had to come up with an, a new idea that we were going to write a feature length screenplay in the six months that the course went through, and. Um, I was playing around with a lot of different superhero ideas because, you know, I've always loved superhero stuff ever since I was a kid and comics and all that good stuff. And um, I was just, I was just tossing about a bunch of different superhero ideas. And uh, just one day going through the brainstorming techniques we learned in the course, this one just came to me, you know, what would happen if, uh, you know, supervillain, superhero, two arch enemies had a baby together and they had to try to raise it. And um, I just, I love the idea. As soon as I came up with it, I thought like, wow, that's really cool and funny and filled with conflict. And I think I could tell a really cool story with that idea. Um, so that was the genesis of it. And uh, and then I wrote it as a feature-length screenplay. Uh, and then I decided to do it as a web series and break it up into small episodes. Awesome. Something uh, Diane and I were talking about right before this is that we love the fact that the main character is a super villain who's the woman. She's the main character. She's a sympathetic character. Yes, thank you. I love that, too. Me, <laughs> <Thank> too. <laughs> It's nice for once to see it from the woman's perspective and also the fact that the hero, he's kind of a jerk off sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I love that so much. He's a real, dou- real douchebag. <laughs> Pull that from personal experience. I'm actually not acting at all. I actually am a really jerky douchebag. That's so why Jeff Cassidy really. is like, I really, I really need a douchebag. Right. You're the biggest douchebag I know. That's how the conversation went, actually. <laughs> Pretty much. I said, thank you. That's the first time anybody told me I have been the best at anything, the best douchebag they'd ever met. So. Your life- this is actually part um, scripted web series and part <laughs> reality show. <laughs> so, so Mark right. is just playing himself, basically, just mm-hmm. impregnating yeah. women and... <laughs> making them feel bad about it sometimes. <laughs> Tough job. <laughs> but someone's got to do it, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's also uh, it's also based on Jordan because Jordan is a, an evil supervillain in real life as well. That's right. Totally. She, she's very yeah. very, very uh, nasty. Yeah. Does a lot. A girl's got to pay her bills. Rob a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, I beat a lot of people up. Okay. Okay. She does. Everybody okay. needs a hobby. She beats, she beats Mark and me up on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I really do. <laughs> well, like Cat, so when it's like Catwoman said. And, you know, girls got to eat, so. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you guys are just being yourselves, but you're trying to monetize on it. And I think that's very <laughs> Nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's very clever. You go, guys. Yeah, well done. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, you know, the, the female protagonist and who was also a villain. Um, I always I love I love writing female characters and making them the main characters of my stories. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think I think we need more of that, and uh, yeah. I'd like to see more of that happen. Um, and I also like that she's a villain too. You know, I, I one thing I like about this series. I mean, okay, I like it because I wrote it, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that was from episode one eighteen. So there's a lot more defective geeks to catch up on. You can find them at defectivegeeks.com. They're also, of course, on iTunes and Stitcher Smart Radio. 
Well, it seems our friend and booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, is on vacation this week, and I have to do the Henderson's Pants spot. Now, old man Henderson called and said he doesn't mind me doing another shot at the live commercial as long as I don't screw it up this time. So, here we go. Hello, friends. Now that we've all been driving hybrid cars for years, isn't it high time for us to start cruising the scene in hybrid pants? Now you can, thanks to Henderson's new Corduroy Rogers jeans. Combining the very best features of sturdy Western-style denim jeans with the cool hip look of ridged corduroy pants, Henderson's Corduroy Rogers jeans are just the ticket. Whether you're setting the tone for casual Friday in the office or riding the range on the weekend. Due to the extremely dense material used in the all-star construction of our Corduroy Rogers jeans, you'll find it hard to sit down, which means you'll spend most of your time walking tall and making a great impression as you stride through your day. These new pants are so hot, they even come with a government warning, and I quote, Because of the flammable fibers and rigid features of this garment's leg sleeves, the wearer is hereby notified that moving at a pace above a slow stroll is likely to result in the pants bursting into flames. Needless to say, now that you have been forewarned, Henderson's pants is absolved of any wrongdoing or mishap that may occur from the wearing of the Henderson's Corduroy Rogers jeans. Originally designed for circus stilt walkers, pyromaniacs, and Smokey the Bear, Henderson's Corduroy Rogers jeans are available wherever people literally are out of their minds. That's Henderson's warming to your form since 1867. And now, back to Succotash. Normally on Succotash, when I've got a long interview, uh, I tend to break it in half or uh, thereabouts. Uh, not sure why. It's not like we have real commercials we have to get to. I uh, just feel that sometimes you want to take a little breather, but nobody has ever said, don't do that. They've never said, we like when you do that. In this case, I'm going to play the entire Mark Price interview uh, all at once, which means right now it's time to get to the Tweet Sack. This week, the Tweet Sack contains a letter from an old friend of the show that fell off the podcast radar a while back and has only just now resurfaced. Here's his note. Dear Mark, I'm sure that you remember me because the show that I've been recording for this long while now is absolutely unforgettable, Cinematic Method. In case you have forgotten, my name is Gerald Carey, a.k.a. Jerry, and I've been editing and essentially producing this thing. Now, I'm going to stop right here to say that I actually really liked the premise of Cinematic Method, and the show itself was often very funny. In fact, I just talked about it to Phil Lernis on episode 59.5. The idea behind the show was that Jerry and his pals would review movie trailers, not the movies themselves, and then, then predict, based on the strength of the trailer alone, how well the film would score over on the Rotten Tomatoes website. It was, it was a very clever premise. Anyway, back to the letter. Recently, following the epiphany that we never actually cared to talk about movies, we rebranded our website and podcast as allocourt.com. That's A-L-O-E, court.com. We decided that all of the responses we'd ever received was for the comedy in our show and not the, the knowledge of film. So we've turned our focus to comedy. In the past, you were kind enough to feature us on your show and even said a kind word or two regarding our show. It appears that you have a fairly deep background in this comedy. From what I can tell, you record, write, and perform a bit. I was wondering if maybe you could tell me what you thought of our new show. I figure someone who has a real background is far better suited to give critiques than friends who are not honest. Thanks for any advice you can spare. Uh, He doesn't say to keep my response private, so uh, let's listen to a clip from a recent episode, and I will give my critique after it's over. 
So the new Star Trek movie is coming out next week, May 16th, which I think is a Thursday. Um, oh, yeah, they want some extra revenue. Sometimes they do that. But more importantly, and what the people care about most, is what we've got going on this week, which is our apartment being examined, our, our big examination, our pre-move-out mm-hmm. apartment check. We're going to have Monica up here. We're going to have Julio up here. Have you guys ever met Julio? No. Great guy. Okay. Um, we're probably going to have Jesse up here. God forbid we might have Gordon up here. We're gonna have all the the oh heavy God, hitters. Oh, Gordon! Yeah, they're gonna be up here going over this place. With Gordon's them. just misunderstood. No, Gordon. I think Gordon cracks the whip. They're gonna come up here, go over this place with a fine tooth comb, fine tooth comb, and look for any reason that they can find to uh, make us pay them, essentially for damage that we've done to the apartment. Which, all things considered, it's in pretty good shape. Yep. The carpet ruined. Yep. A lot of the walls ruined. The bathrooms. Disrepair. Other than that, though. Kitchen. Mm. Patio. Deck. Area. Uh, f- dirtier than it's ever been. And I don't mean with clutter. I mean with dirt. And it's outside, but it's filthy. You can't go out there with bare feet. No. I wouldn't recommend you do. And that's part of the problem. You go out there with shoes on. You come back in. You're going to ruin the rug. Yep. Um, so I'm concerned. I'm not going to be here when they come, which is even more concerning. Yeah, I was wondering, do we have to be here and say things to them? You're like, going to have to be here. Why. You might have to be here making excuses for us the whole time. We might be better off just getting out and letting them do what they will. Yeah. So apparently you guys just struck up a deal because you share a bathroom. Yeah. Is the deal now, Chris, is you're going to clean up the kitchen? Yes. And Jerry's going to clean up the bathroom? Yeah. I don't know which one of the two is going to be more poorly executed, the kitchen clean or the bathroom clean. Because both of you guys... This is not a shot at you two necessarily, but you're not great cleaners. Well, we we never claim to be. Right. I actually have claimed to be, and I take a little bit of exception with this. I've I've done a pretty decent cleaning job on the kitchen before. Okay, you know what? That's true. You can, when you put your mind to it, clean something up, but you can't maintain cleanliness. All I have to maintain is for like four hours. Right. It's like... Which is going to be tough, but I want to say it's doable. You're, um... I can't even think of the right way to... The way that you keep clean is like a steep, a steep climb, a steep and quick climb to dirtiness. And then it'll stay that dirty, which is as dirty as it can be, until it needs, it absolutely, for one reason or another, has to be cleaned. Like maybe your parents are coming into town. Yeah. Maybe the apartment is getting inspected. Yep. And at that point, it'll plummet all the way back down to passably clean. But the second that those people are gone, it shoots all the way back up to as dirty as it could possibly be. Which is be. fine. I mean, I feel like the way I go about it is perfect for the situation. Yeah. I'm pull the wolf straight over their eyes. Jerry is operating under a sort of a different model, which is dirty. But it gets there very slowly. It gets there gradually, and it sort of tapers off at just dirty. <laughs> Never, like, unlivably dirty, which is, I would say, your situation right now, Chris. Yeah. I mean, unlivably by some people's standards. I'm living. Yeah. Um. We have a big week, and I don't like our odds at yeah, coming out I'm unscathed. I'm going to have to um, I'm just clean the bathroom. I'm also going to have to do a lot of work on my own room. Just like moving The upturned stuff. couch. Yeah, the upturned couch is, is an issue. At, well, where in the apartment rule book does it not say you can't have half of a sectional 
turn on its side in your room by blocking the closet and most other things you would want to get to in a room. There's a slice of aloe court, formerly cinematic method. Since you asked, Jerry, here's my take. It's conversational for sure, and you and the other two guys are entertaining. You have touchstones along the way, interspersed with music bumpers and uh, automated sounding labels for each section of the show. So it definitely has a podcast feel to it. But I got to tell you, I miss the novelty of the movie trailer review. Now, you mentioned that uh, nobody ever mentioned movie knowledge and just the comedy, but the comedy came off the touchstones of the, of reviewing those those movie trailers. And why would anybody mention your, your movie knowledge if all you were doing were, was really reviewing the trailers? That was the, the premise. But I, you know, you got to go where the comedy takes you. So if that's what you're feeling, the way you're doing it now, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but for my two cents, I would say uh, at least include a segment where you still do the movie trailer review because no one else, as far as I know, is doing it. And why lose um, your trademark? Everyone else is kind of sitting around and doing doing stuff about, uh, you know, pop culture and what's in the news. So stick with what, uh, at least in part, with what kind of got you guys into the podcast game to begin with. I think it's a great idea. Uh, What do you guys think of the boys' new show? Give a listen to a whole epi at allocourt.com. Again, that's A-L-O-E-C-O-U-R-T.com. Uh, iTunes and also Stitcher Smart Radio, then shoot me an email at mark, M-A-R-C, at succotashshow.com and let me know what you think. I'll read your comments in the next Tweet Sack segment or whenever I get them. And, uh, boys, I hope that critique was okay. You asked for my opinion, and uh, that's what I thought. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is DJ Getz, and you're listening to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. We got a call on the Succotash hotline from SAG-AFTRA co-presidents Ken Howard and Rebecca Reardon. Wow, heavyweight actors in the Hollywood community calling us. Very exciting. Let's see what they have to say. This is SAG-AFTRA co-president Ken Howard. And this is SAG-AFTRA co-president and commercials negotiating committee chair Roberta Reardon. We're calling to remind you to vote yes on the new commercials contract. Online voting ends Friday, May 31st at 5 p.m. Pacific. To cast your vote online, go to www.sagaftra.org and click on Commercials Vote. Retrieve your PIN number and vote online. That's www.sagaftra.org. Go online and cast your yes vote right now. SAG-AFTRA Commercials Negotiating Committee and the National Board unanimously approve the contract. And Roberta and I both recommend a yes vote. Vote yes on the commercials contract today. Thank you. As you can see, I'm not just the host and executive producer of the preeminent comedy podcast podcast, but clearly I'm thought to be quite the mover and shaker in SAG after if those guys are going to take the time out of their busy day to robocall me. It was a waste of time, though, guys, really, as I've already voted on that thing you were calling about. All right, so it's time for the recitation of the Twitter handles of some of the fine folk who have talked us up kindly, retweeted us, or didn't unfollow us this week on Twitter. Davey and Dent, John O'Dirty Kong, Chap and Ken, who are back in the podcast biz after a six-month hiatus, Barker Podcast, Monkey34, Eric Furness. Uh, who has returned with the Fooncast, by the way, after a two-month break because of some uh, studio problems they were having because of the really bad weather uh, on the East Coast this year. Serial Nerd, The Rigid Fist, Tyson Saner, Salty Language, 
W.T. Buster, Probama, Benjamin Bubb, David J. Griffiths, Slow Sonic, Royal and Doodle, who I owe another apology to. When I read their kind note a couple of episodes back, I, uh, I, I flipped my reference uh, about which one was Tommy and which, was, which one was Angus. So, I'm sorry, it was, it was the other way around. And we'd be remiss if we didn't give a special thank you and mention to all those folks kind and generous enough to click on the donate button at Suckatash.com and throw us a few bones to offset our expenses. Thank you, guys. Hey, this is the man from Slacker and the Man Podcast. You're listening to Suckatash. Now, Mark Price, perhaps best known, as I said earlier, for his role as Skippy on Family Ties for seven seasons, was passing through my hometown of Mill Valley a couple of weeks ago and played a Tuesday night at the 142 Throckmorton Theater, uh, the regular show we have there, Mark Pitta and Friends. Now, I've not seen Mark for quite some time. We used to hang out quite a bit when I lived in L.A., and uh, so it was high time for us to catch up, so I pried him loose from the clutches of a bar wench, and we sat down in front of the Succotash mics. I am uh, in uh, Mill Valley, the Mill Valley Inn, with Mark Price. Uh, Mark Price is... uh, a fellow that uh, I don't think we've laid eyes on each other other than perhaps photos on Facebook for 20 plus years. 20 plus years. It's, it is amazing. It is amazing. And uh, he, is, uh, he just finished playing uh, a Tuesday night at the Throckmorton, the 142 Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley. And uh, so is passing through Marin on a grand tour of the West Coast, as I understand it. Uh, Mark, welcome to Succotash. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> What? <laughs> Sounds like something something rude you're telling me to do. Um, anyway, God, what? Okay, twenty plus years. What have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> How have you been? Uh, uh, some of you uh, may be familiar with uh, with Mark Price uh, from his uh, his uh, TV role as uh, Skippy on Family Ties. Still milking it. Still, still milking it. Unbelievably, really. <laughs> Considering it was only on a couple times. And... <laughs> Um, and, uh, gosh, we actually, you know, the, and there's a whole generation of people that don't know it either. That's the other thing too. I really have to, uh, to accept that. Yeah. You know, I, I have, it took me a while to like get it through my head, but now I don't even yeah. use Skippy to try to get laid or anything. <laughs> <laughs> they don't remember. But, um, I say I'm the guy who plays Stewie, the voice of Stewie and family guy. It's <laughs> close enough, but. And they don't question that. No, no. Why? No, why would they? Who knows what he looks like? Uh, you know, I was thinking because uh, when Mark Pitta, who books the the Tuesday night show, told me you were going to be here this week, I started thinking back. Man, we used to hang out actually quite a bit in L.A. when I was I was living down there, and uh, we would go to your place, and we'd go to God, I can't even remember the places we used to hang out. I do I do remember one incident, and this is just now coming to mind, so I don't have all the salient details, but maybe you'll remember this. We were going to something at Paramount, and. You, you had a limo, and I think... <laughs> That's I, right away. It's I, funny, I, considering I, my current life circumstances. I, I, I had a limo to go to Paramount. It was some sort of thing. It was like uh, a big party or something, but you only had like a plus one on this invitation. We had like five guys in this limo, and I can't remember if we had to hide in the limo or exactly what was going on, but somehow we all got on the lot. I remember that, but it was a big... It was kind of like sneaking into a drive-in movie in or the something. Truck. Yeah. So if everyone's hiding in the limo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the problems of Hollywood. <laughs> hiding in the limo. Uh, so Mark is a, uh, a stand-up. You're doing stand-up now. You've been doing stand How long have you been doing stand-up? 
So my dad was a comedian, and I started performing with him, if that counts. When I was, you know, when I was a baby, they would bring, my mom was a singer. Okay. And they would work together, because in those days it was a singer and a comedian. Not 15 comedians in a row. Sure. And your dad was? Al Burney, who no one listening to this remembers his name, but that's okay. He was a fantastic comedian. According to Don Rickles, he was the best of us kid. Wow. The best of us. Although high praise indeed. His name didn't land too well with Mort Saul tonight. But every once in a while that happens. <laughs> um, and who was your mom? Your mom's name? My mom's stage name was Joy Mann. Everyone had a stage name in those days. Oh, uh, yes. Right? So my yeah. dad was Al Bernie, but his real name was Alfred Price, Mark Price. Right, right. My name. And a lot of times he would change your name to sound less Jewish. That's uh, where okay. stage name came from. But he went for Price to Bernie. <laughs> to be more Jewish. <laughs> it was makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> But it had to do with the fact that his mom, who was kind of a stage mom, uh, didn't like his dad, who was an old-time agent. Really? My my grandfather was Lou Price. Wow. Uh, they used to call Low Price. <laughs> and uh, Walter Winchell writes about my grandfather. Really? And a thing I found on Google, uh, that he's one of the few agents that made the uh, transition from vaudeville into the theater era. Okay. Interesting. That's amazing. That yeah. is, I mean, that is a true show business family lineage. That's amazing. So, uh, but my mom would sing and my dad would do the comedy and then they'd bring me out at the end. I was a cheap device for applause. <laughs> now, if you're going to get hooked on having to be in front of a crowd, that's how to do it, right? Right away as a baby. Yeah. They say when you're in the womb, you hear stuff and you get sick. <laughs> yeah. So imagine being actually, you know, so, brought out on stage. So did your dad do vaudeville? Paraded. He was, after vaudeville, let's see, my dad started performing, I don't really know all the exact years of the history, mm-hmm. I don't, never went to school and didn't even bother studying my own <laughs> my own craft to know exactly when vaudeville happened and all, but my dad was uh, performing in the 20s, I mean, my dad was born in 1920 and okay. started performing as a kid. Wow, okay. And um, by 1940, when he was 20 years old, he was on the radio with Fred Allen. Wow. Okay. And that was, you know, the American Idol, whatever you yeah. want to call it, the equivalent of... Uh, no, absolutely. You know. I, I, I am a fan of old radio shows. It's what got me into radio originally when I was when I was in junior high school. There was a station in San Francisco that would play old radio shows. So I'm a huge fan of Fred Allen and Jack Benny and Suspense and all those old radio shows. He did Fred. He was a mimic. My dad was okay. a mimic at first before he was a comedian. A funny mimic. And... He did Fred Allen with Fred Allen. Oh, funny. And when you see that stuff these days on, you know, Sarah Palin on the, on the yeah. Sarah Live with uh, Tina Fey being yes. Sarah Palin, it's, that you know, a lot of those th- things my dad was on the cutting edge of, if you think about it, because back in those days, really, they were, were people weren't doing people with the person. Yeah. Um, another, uh, my dad has some unusual firsts. <laughs> uh, he was the first person, I believe, to impersonate Elvis on television. Really? Because in 1956, before Elvis was on the Ed Sullivan show, yeah, my dad, the week before, my dad was on and he does Elvis. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty now, funny. Now, Milton Burl pointed out to me when I told him this story that, um, that Milton had had Elvis on TV already. Uh, of course. Of course, <laughs> yeah. You, you can't out Milton Milton. In fact, you know, there's a story. I, I told you that uh, last week we played uh, It's a Mad, Bad, Mad, Mad World here at the theater. Uh, in honor of, of Jonathan Winter's passing. And there's a story on the extras for that DVD that uh, Milton Burrow was such a camera hog that he would he always made sure in the group scenes, they, they had these group scenes where everyone would kind of wander off to their cars and drive away. He always made sure he was the last person out of the frame. 
Sounds like something I used to do. I'm over it now, but I, I was uh, I was like that. I remember once the first uh, thing when I showed up in L.A. to kind of see how a movie was made or whatever. I was an extra. Yeah. On a dance, you know, dance it was a school high school dance or something, and I was an extra. But I didn't I didn't really know the, how it worked. You know, yeah. I was there to learn, but I didn't know. <laughs> and so I worked myself into the background of every shot. <laughs> And if they're not paying attention, which you on this little budget thing, there was nobody paying attention, right? But meanwhile, so so yeah. you can't actually be in the back of every shot. It makes no logical sense. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. But I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just trying to be in the movie. Oh yeah, the low budget ones are the best because those are the ones when they they need a crowd scene. They just they recycle they the crowd. The so people, the, yeah. the people in the back are suddenly the ones in the front, <laughs> and cha- change you know jackets with that guy. Because like, I started out doing extra work up here in San Francisco. There used to be a huge industry up here. I was on like an episode of Emergency, and I was in the uh, the movie The Serial, and all these things up here. They shot I, the Emergency up here. They shot a special episode. Oh, okay. Special, up here, a very special, episode. very special episode of Emergency. And I've never seen myself as an extra in any of the stuff I did. And I, I must have done more than a dozen extra our pieces. Friends, our friend Steve Smith, yes, used to do it, and he took me once to like Invasion of Mars or whatever. <laughs> And uh, and we sat all night, uh, and then they finally, in the early in the morning, they got us up, and it was like we were troops in some army or something, because we were sitting in the back of the truck early. Yeah, yeah. You know, but our job was just to be bodies in the back of the military <laughs> truck, kind of, you know. Yeah. Uh, Smith was in um, uh, Back Freddy to the Future 2. He was in the dance scene. Oh, really? Yeah, the high school dance scene. He's one of those extras. Yes, he gets killed by Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I have a good friend that did stunts on Back to the Future 2. Oh, okay. Do you know that a stunt went bad on that movie? When they're on the hovercrafts, when they're on the the flying... uh, The hoverboards. Hoverboards. Yeah. What are those called when they're on the ground? Skateboards. Yeah, it's like a flying skateboard. Yeah. So uh, there's a chase sequence, and they go through the town hall glass windows. Yes, yes, yes. Well, they were all... The the stunt guys were on strings, and there's somebody's job it is to let the hit the release button and yeah. they swing and the string releases and they fly. Yeah, they go through the glass and... So something somebody got caught up and one of the strings didn't go right and they were in the wrong place but Ooh. somebody went through the window and the guy hit the button when the window yeah. broke and, and they fell in the wrong place. And everyone, I believe, uh, is okay ultimately but there was a gal, one of the girls, uh, stunt ladies that was in the hospital for a long time and wow. a lot of stuff but I think she's okay now but... Some of those stunts are just, they're hairy. Those guys sign up for that. They know they're all yeah. in that business. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so you come from this this comedy background. Amazingly brave. I remember just another footnote. One of the guys yeah. that does this stuff, I remember I was a kid, 15 years old, on location at a movie. And we were going to some nightclub or something. We were in the back of a pickup truck on the freeway, you know, going 65 or 70 or whatever. And the guy gets up and he starts surfing on the back of the pickup oh, truck. Jesus. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, don't worry, I'm leaning in. Like, if anything goes wrong, I'll fall in. Nice. But he was he was balancing on the back of the pad. Nice. Those guys are nice. Um, so when does it happen that you go from being a prop in your dad's act to you wanting to actually do stand-up yourself? I always wanted to follow in my footsteps. Uh, in my footsteps. I was your own, your own, own footsteps. footsteps so you're walking really backwards. Really hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the follow the footsteps of my dad. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be him. And so the moment I think was, I, I moved out to LA and started auditioning for stuff, going to acting class. And 
I got, I wanted to do stand. My dad wanted me to do it too. My dad recognized a new world order for comedy. I yeah. he had been around and been on Ed Sullivan and been part of the Catskill Mountains and nightclubs and things. But he saw the comedy clubs booming before they did. Hmm. He was pretty adept at that stuff because he'd seen comedy change so much his whole sure, life. Yeah. He knew. By the way, it needs to change again now, right? It really does. We're, we've become the Catskill Mountains. Yeah, I, and it is. I mean, there's definitely is a new sort of order of comedy beginning to is there, there, there seems what, to be yeah. what is it can you put your finger on it I don't know I don't know if it's gelled yet it's there I mean but there's a lot of just like the last comedy boom that really kind of got its start in the, the sort of mid 70s there's a lot of one nighter clubs beginning to spring up and they you know they they're, they're up for a couple of months and then they go away and they move to somewhere else and it's always started by comics that want to get on stage so they start an open mic somewhere mm-hmm. so they can get stage time well, there's I, plenty of that going on. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I know everybody's a promoter and a producer now, yeah, as but, well as a comic. But but I think it's all being augmented now by by the web, by YouTube, by Twitter, by all these things. So that's why I don't think it's gelled yet. It's still sort of finding its its way as to what it actually is going to be. I don't think it's going to be a circuit of clubs like it was in the mid mid eighties to early nineties. That I don't think that's coming back. I think there'll still be clubs, but I think it's going to be a different model of how comedy works its way into sort of uh, American popularity. I always wondered if it would be returned to music and comedy together again, as it was hmm. for so many years. That blows people's minds out. Really, a singer and a comedian, but of course I grew up with it, and that yes, was yeah. all of the history of show business until the comedy clubs with 15 comedians became popular. Yeah, I think it may be just, it might be even more multimedia than that. Well, that's what Bud thinks. Bud Friedman, the owner okay, of the yeah. clubs, who I'm fortunate enough to be friends with, he thinks it's going to head towards uh, interactivity and be yeah, that's, YouTube clips and that kind of thing. That's kind of my feeling, too, because it's all there, and it's all so accessible. It's you know. doable. It's it's not crazy expensive, and you don't need uh, slides. Remember when the comedians used to use slideshows? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, Pitta tonight, Mark Pitta tonight, did his that YouTube bit. That's and right. That really did kind of show you that there could be entire shows produced that have intricate stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm actually uh, helping to to do a show now that we uh, have done twice in San Francisco called Speechless. That is uh, basically people doing PowerPoint presentations, uh, but the um, they don't know what this topic's going to be till they get on stage. They're not really performers. They are. They're, we call them presenters. Some of them. Sometimes we have we have stand up comics. We have improvisers, and we have people that are just basically people. from business, from high tech that do PowerPoint. But they don't know what the images are in the deck, and they have to improvise a presentation. I like. It. I want to. I would like to give a presentation. Please. It's pretty cool. It's pretty <laughs> cool. So, but again, to, you couldn't. You wouldn't have thought of it five years ago. The technology just wasn't sound enough. To pull it off, um, but let's get back to you, the essential Mark. Um, By the way, I want to invest in one of those um, the, the little box that pro- propels the, the the image onto the wall. Oh, the yeah, the presentation projector. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Those yeah. are getting coming down in price, getting better. I always wonder why comics haven't tapped into that. Well, they're not only coming it. down in price; they've now got them now, and, and the lamps are almost bright enough that you can get one that will fit your iPhone. That you can literally do the presentation out of your iPhone. Yeah, it's that's amazing. It's Just amazing. Of course, you go to Best Buy to figure it out. Okay, I'm a stand-up. I need this to try to do that. Go, You're a stand-up. I'm a stand-up. Yes. The guy who works at Best Buy yeah. is a stand-up now. Yeah, but I mean, you do a bit in your act where you use your iPhone, right? I mean, yeah. you do a ringtone bit. Right. I used to have the guys do cue it on CD, and then I went, "What am I doing?" I I'll hold it up to the mic. That's right. So the technology is there, and it's again taking it out of the hands of production people and everything else and it's everybody can become sort of a self-contained production unit really and do the show however you want to do it and get it right which is just 
it's it's almost mind-boggling that you know there's kind of no limitations uh and of course with no limitations you begin to sort of limit yourself because you go my mind is blown i don't know what to do next but you're right it's uh and in a lot of ways modern comedy has been about no limitations in the past but now there's even less limitations. <laughs> yeah, because before there was the struggle, well, I, I need to d- get funny enough that I can get on The Tonight Show, or I, I need to get my own TV show. Well, now you can make your own TV show and probably have more people watch it online than the chances of actually selling a TV show is today. And ironically, there hasn't been a comic on The Tonight Show, and I haven't seen that. <laughs> I don't even put them on anymore. I guess not, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so when did you make the move to Los Angeles uh, from back east? So my parents got divorced in the 70s when it was very popular. Yes. They didn't even call it divorce. I'm being recycled. <laughs> that was one of my dad's jokes. And uh, so it really crushed my dad because uh, he loved my mom so much. And he was very upset, but he wanted to move out west because he had done that when I was born. Okay. In 69. And my mom moved us back east to New Jersey. She didn't want showbiz. She didn't want Hollywood. She wanted to do normal. And she retired from being a singer and became a cop. (laughs) Well, wow, perfect. That's how much she hated club owners and agents and bookers. She said, I'd rather get shot at (laughs) and go undercover as a prostitute against the mob (laughs) and stuff like that. She did really dangerous stuff. Every show that comes on, NCIS and, you know, every division she was in. Really? Internal affairs, drugs, rape. She was in the rape squad. She she was... For um, NYPD? For New Jersey, Jersey. Bergen County Prosecutor's Office. Okay. And so, uh, so she stayed back east and became a cop, I mean, with us until I was about 12. And then I moved out with my dad. And uh, we moved out to, we moved out west. Wow. And he was going to be on a sitcom or something. He was determined to make something like that happen, but it was a little late for him mm. because he was a little bit older and television had changed so much. His friend Phil Foster, like my uncle. Yeah, yeah. Phil Foster played okay. the grumpy dad on Laverne and Shirley. Sure. And was an old-time Catskill comic and stuff like that. So he was friends with your dad? He was. They were good friends. And, you know, some of those guys came out at the right time and hit it, like Phil Foster. That's you know, right. They got yeah. on a show and all that stuff. But it was earlier, you know what I mean? Yeah. By the 80s, things had changed and... The, the, the Catskill guys were no longer in the forefront of the scene. Yeah. I remember one of the times I was visiting. I hadn't even moved out west yet. And my dad was on the show, Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop. Oh, sure. Yeah. And Mark Pitt has sent me a tape of it recently because he's got a collection of it. And it reminded me that that show was one of the only shows in history to mix the two genres of comedians completely because it was all of Norm Crosby's that's, friends. That's right, yeah. And it was Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld and young Gary Shandling. That's right, that it was stuff. sort of like the ch- the changing of the guard. All that, that show really was, in a yeah. weird way. Interesting. Interesting. The comedy shop. The comedy store was a big hit. We'll call it the comedy shop. <laughs> so, uh, how old were you when you moved out here to be with your dad? So that the first visits were 12 and 13, and then 13, I think, was the age I actually officially moved out. 14, Family Ties started. So Okay. I went on the Merv Griffin show when I was 14 first, as a comic, as a solo comic. Okay. Oh, wow. So how, how, how long before that had you started to develop an act that you could actually do on the Merv Griffin show? Well, I can point to an experience per, perfectly clear that was the whole, I mean, my whole life was part of it but specifically I auditioned for this kids show where there were singers and dancers and we ended up at the Roxy for many years mm. on Sunday 
you need a place to drop your kids. You don't know about this, but people have young kids. I see. You might have to do with the grandkids. There you go. <laughs> um, they need a place to drop them off, give them, you know, get them entertained, and let them, you know, it was like a bowling or. So the Roxy was the place to do it. So it smells like beer and cigarettes from the night before. <laughs> oh, boy. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. We were kids. We'd come in to rehearse and stuff. There'd be guys with heroin needles. Nice. Passed out and stuff. Uh, but, yeah, they they drop off the kids, and it was good entertainment. The, the, the singers and dancers of the show were hugely talented. I mean, just mind-bogglingly good. Well, they must have been all, like, kids of Hollywood stars and stuff. Not kids of stars, but just that talent, just that raw talent. They casted the show. They didn't just take anyone. They had all okay. Hollywood kids to choose from. Yeah. They had auditions, and they picked really good ones. Um, and so, but I was the comedian of the show, and no one else was even trying to be the comedian, and so I had that oh, that's nice. carved out for myself. And, now, did your dad help you with material? He did. He helped me with material. He helped me. I took some of his jokes. And um, I'm blanking out on the name of the comedian. Uh, he wrote the official joke books. Larry hmm. Wilde. Okay. I don't know if that name rings a bell. It does ring and a bell, they, yeah. It was always like the official Polish okay, uh, yeah. slash Italian joke book. Yeah. And there was one that was the smart kids, dumb parents joke book. And then the other side was the dumb kids, smart <laughs> parents joke book. The, the, the novelty of his joke books were that you would flip it over and turn it upside down, and there would be the other half. Okay, yeah. In the other direction. I, I remember those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were they were big. They were yeah. big. So I think the smart kids, dumb parents joke book was like my first act. <laughs> okay. And uh, that with some Jay Leno jokes and you know a little mix. Yeah. Uh, uh, the first Murph Griffin went really well. I killed. And then they invited me back. It's the famous thing. They invited me back two weeks later. Oh, see that. But I had blown my wad. I was 14 course. years old. I did my whole set. And you, my, you barely had a wad at 14. Right? And, but I had my little set, but I had done it. <laughs> and my dad worked hard with me on it, too. I mean, he was like, uh, you know, the idol maker or something. He was hard on me. I mean, I remember he was really hard on me working on it. And he was like, you know, and it was good. It was a good coach, but he was hard, you know. Yeah. Quarter notes. Quarter notes. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like uh, like the coach in Rocky, yeah. come on, kid, <laughs> hit the punchline. <laughs> and then um, he went on the road, and when they invited me back two you're, weeks later, he wasn't there to help me. coach was gone. My coach was gone. My act was gone. So me and Greg Lestraps, my 14-year-old friend, worked out a set. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. And it didn't go as well. Let's just say that. Marvelous. Marvelous. <laughs> and he wasn't, no, Merv wasn't even there. Oh, so now no. I come back. Now Merv's not there. It's Dick Clark guest hosting. Oh, no. Now, Dick Clark is like, what, and, and he's no longer with us. Right. And he's one of the greatest guys in show business. And I don't want to knock him, but, you know, and he's known for being a host, right? The yes. Guys, he wasn't, he was no Merv Griffin. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you're there. <laughs> It was my fault. I don't want to blame Dick Clark. Really, it's not fair. But I mean, it, it was like the perfect storm. Your dad, your dad's on the road. You you write a, your next set with a guy who's your age, right? And then the host of the show isn't even the host of the show. Exactly. So, oh my god. So how awkward. So how was that experience? I mean, bobbing on television. I spoke yeah. real fast. I talked too fast. The second one, and uh, there was a girl that was in a. Oh god. There was a movie with two girls in Greece and a good-looking guy. I don't know if mm. you remember this, like, from years ago. And they're, like, naked in the picture and stuff. I remember that. And she was one of the guests on the Dick Clark one. Okay. And she she actually suggested that I slow down a little. <laughs> I remember after the show. She was telling me, you need to slow down a oh, little. Oh, boy. Was, so nervous. They're talking fast, yeah. Oh, man. Wow. Okay, so you're 14. And the, so... guy, and the guy from the Blue Lagoon was on, too. See, I remember who Oh, yeah, was on. yeah. What was that guy? Atkins. Christopher yeah. Atkins. Christopher Atkins. 
I got it. I what still happened? get it. Now, where's Christopher Atkins today? That's the, he's got blue hair instead of the blue lagoon. <laughs> so, but you're 14. Is that when you the same age you got cast in Family Ties? So yeah, they saw NBC saw the first Merv Griffin, thankfully, <laughs> and uh, and called me in. They groomed me a little bit. I, I got very lucky. They you know they were trying to find Mama's Family was a new show at that time, and they were trying to put me in that as the okay. kid, and I didn't get cast in that, and I was upset. Why didn't I get this? It would have been you know Carol Burnett. And I really wanted that bad. But a few weeks later, uh, the family ties happened, and then from that moment on, I've always looked at destiny differently. Like, sometimes when things don't go the way you want them to go, which, you know, in my life I'm having some of that right now, yeah. there may be something around the corner that's even better, and that's the famous thing that, you know, people say, but it's true. So I, I always look at life that way now. So you're on family ties, and uh, how long does that, that ride last? 14 to 21, so seven years great years for that and uh, I did know I was in something special I was very appreciative the whole time it wasn't like I was blase I knew how talented everybody was that I was around I got to learn and work with these great people yeah but you don't look forward to the future thinking oh man this might be the greatest thing I'll ever be and like you think you know you figure at the, when you're on a ride like that and this is a common thing you think oh it's gonna last forever sure know? so uh, I don't you know I don't think anybody on the show understood how you know how radically wonderful it was for us versus uh, the other show business opportunities in our future. Yeah, because <laughs> really nobody's had anything quite as good as that since. No, that's true. That's true. Um, unless you count Tremors, I guess for uh, <laughs> for Michael Gross. <laughs> for Michael Gross. Uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's it's kind of a, those things are kind of. A he was the funniest one. That's the show, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, off, you know, on the side of the when we were, he would just crack us up all the time. Yeah. Well, again, a, you know, funny family. His sister was Mary Gross. You know, was on SNL. Right. Oh, yeah, she's awesome too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of that's funny. Um, but uh, it, it is kind of interesting. You get those magic moments where it is cast and crew and writers and all that stuff comes together to make that thing happen, and eventually it just. You know the ship starts to starts to change course because somebody leaves, things change. You get you know network shifts. I did another series around that time that lasted one season, and that was called Condo with McLean Stevenson. Wow, from Mash, and yeah. he had a bunch of shows. Right, Hello Larry, Larry was a yeah. DJ, and he was one was an astronaut. <laughs> I'm serious. They had he had like five shows. He had more shows than anyone else. Maybe I, yeah. I don't know if that's this is true yeah. or not, but certainly he's one of the people that had as many tries yeah. in a sitcom as anyone. You know. And so this was going to be his last one. He knew it. Condo was it. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't going to give him any more, right? This was it. <laughs> and he was incredibly talented, by the way. Just a hoot to hang out with. Kind of re what reminded me of the story, as I said, Michael yeah, Gross yeah, Michael was funny. Yeah. McLean Stevenson was hysterical. Oh, okay. He was, just told stories and had us all laughing. So he held back a little, like the great comedians often do. They don't give all their shit away to the crew and everybody yeah. during the week. They wait for the night of the taping, and then they unleash a little extra. Yeah, yeah. They hold back a little until, until they're rolling. And so he did that and threw in a little something, and it was hysterical. It was really funny. He got a big laugh from the audience, and I, bro I broke the scene laughing. Oh, no. As a little kid, I was yeah. like, oh, this is, I ruined the tape. Oh, no. And he pulled me aside, and there was that... A desperation of oh. this being his last opportunity for a great show, and here I just blew a some really funny moment, and he kind of grabbed me by the arm or whatever. He wasn't mean; he was always a nice guy, whatever. Yeah. But he he 
burned into me that you don't do that. And I never did again. I never broke a scene again. The entire scene family ties. I never, <laughs> ever broke a scene laughing. Yeah, so you learned. I learned. That's I did good. learn that day, yes. That's good. That's good. Um, so what uh, what happens after uh, at, at the age of 21, after Family Ties goes off? I was fortunate enough to uh, have been a guest on the Win, Loser, Draw show a few times, where you probably helped me write jokes. I think I did, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Bert Convey uh, was this uh, another great guy that I got to. I got to work with all these great old-time showbiz people, and he kind of took me under his wing a little bit. He chose me to be the host of a teen version of okay. Win, Loser, Draw on the Disney Channel. And that ran for a few years after Family Ties, and that actually made more money from that than from Family Ties. So that was kind of, and the Disney Channel had just started up, right? I mean, it was, yeah, it was a, still a pay channel. Yeah, okay. It was early Disney, and they're doing it again, by the way. I just heard they're doing the new Win, Lose, or Draw on Disney Oh, Channel. really? Yeah. And I know the executive producer, and I, before I left town, I thought about calling to try, I wouldn't be the host. Right. But I thought maybe I could work on the show as a producer or something, and then I, 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 I wimped on trying to make that happen because I thought, oh, it'd be too pathetic. It'd be too sad. <laughs> he used to host the show. Now, can you get my coffee? <laughs> you know, what's the who's on next? What's their credits? You know, anyway, so should I do it? What do you think? Should I should I call an offer to be a producer on there? I love the show. I know the show. Why not? Why not? I mean, Hollywood is just. I mean, it really is a question of you know recycling friendships and everything else to just kind of keep moving forward. I mean, one of my best friends who's actually coming up to play the Throckmorton next week, uh, a comic who just. Um, had so many opportunities just kind of passed by. He got really popular. Um, and uh, then for years, he just didn't want to go out. And he just, he stopped going to the improv and hanging out. And he just... Everyone stopped doing that. Well, yeah, but he, <laughs> he, he, stopped, he stopped doing it the wrong time. Uh, that He's, would be me too, probably. Uh, and, I haven't done it before. And he would just, he was he was living on the other side of the hill in Studio City. Because uh, I would run, I used, I rented a room from him. Because when I came down from, from San Francisco, I would stay there. And he'd go, nah, I don't feel like going out tonight. And then the next night, nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. And so all these opportunities started coming by. And he told me this one story where Seinfeld had just gone off the air. Now, this guy had done comedy, had had started in the early 70s, knew all the guys from New York, moved out at the same time. They all came out in a big pack. Overton and all these guys all came out in a big Bill pack. Bill Yeah. And uh, he said he walked into the improv. It was the year after uh, Seinfeld had gone off, and Larry David was sitting there in the restaurant. And he goes... Oh, my God, he sees this guy walk in. He goes, the whole time we were on the air, I never thought of you. You would have been perfect. <laughs> now, how do you want to hear that? <laughs> right? So he had to think about, about the fact he didn't walk into the improv for 10 years because Seinfeld was on the air. And this guy never thought of him and would have used him in an instant. There you go. There so, you have so it. that's the importance of, of you know, if you're going to be in in LA, I think you need to circulate. And you so need to the idea, a little bit. so the idea of calling up the producer and going, "Hey, I see you guys are doing the show. It'd be I would uh, at the moment I'm in between jobs, um, you know, whatever. And I, you know, I'd love to just come by and hang out first of all, and then when you get there, just say, "Hey, anything I can do here? You know, just kind of schmooze your way back in." Schmooze. I was never a big schmoozer. Never a big schmoozer. Also, I'll have to say that when I do, uh, I wait too long. First of all, you can wait too long to call in your car. It's like if yeah. you have somebody, you know, if you wait too long, it's, yeah. it, it wanes. It goes away. <laughs> and so we don't have to name names, but in more recent years, I decided to, not not this year, but a couple of years back, I decided to call in a few just to, like, see what would happen, you know, sure. call, call a couple of important people, see if I can dig up a little work or something. Nothing. <laughs> 
<laughs> couldn't even get lunch with these people. I thought we're completely going to be there for me. Yeah. Now, were they were they still in a position to do something? Or, yes. Or, yes, I've got some okay. people that are very powerful that I worked with before. They were so powerful, but they're just too powerful to have lunch with me. Uh, yeah, you know, I used to book comedy, you know, back before I moved to L.A. I used to book comedy here in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, like uh, one guy that I used to call up to book comics was Brad Gray. Well, Brad Gray's the president of Paramount now. Guess who won't ever take my call? Okay, I, I don't mean to tit for your tat, but I passed on Brad Gray managing me. See, that's what happens sometimes. <laughs> that's what happens. With Ruben and Cords. Wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> they were comedy writers. They had yes. stand-up for me. I wanted stand-up. Yeah, of course. Brad Gray, went, he wanted to put me in TV series oh, and movies. Oh, who needs and that? That's not what you wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to work at the Throckmorton. <laughs> on a Tuesday. <laughs> so so you've been on a on a voyage of discovery, really. I mean, you know, uh and and where has wh- what sort of things have have, you know, sort of captured your interest? Well, I'm I'm a lazy mofo, and I can I'm not too proud to admit it. I think maybe I would have been scared to admit it years ago, but now I can look back and go, I've been a little lazy because you can get comfortable, you know, if yeah. you've got Enough money to get by. I've never been crazy wealthy. I, when I was younger with the TV show and stuff, I had some bucks. But, you know, it's been a long time since I've had, like, lots of money. Yeah. But I've been, can't complain, you know, comfortable. Yeah. And somehow, when I'm, that's a, not necessarily a good thing for me, like, because I, um, living in Laurel Canyon, in the woods, in the hills, yeah. You can just tuck in and, like you say, go, hey, you want to go to the comedy store? Not really for $15. May I put on pants? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've been a little bit like that. And that could be for a lot of reasons, too. You know, there's all kinds of psychological stuff that goes into why you would do or not sure. do. And then the other thing for me was that I, I got into, uh, off the Disney Channel project, I produced a show for Disney Channel okay. special. It was the making of the making of. Okay. Parody of making of film. And uh, I really got into producing. I was the executive producer, you know, and I loved the idea that, like, the guys that did Family Ties and stuff, that I could be one of them, you know, I wanted to be like them and stuff. Run a show. Yeah, yeah. Make something happen from conception to happening. And uh, so I set out to be a producer and try to get shows made. And while I've had a few sales and a couple things on the air, most recently a Showtime special and a series on the Game Show Network and specials on Animal Planet and blah, blah, blah. Um, Never really got a hit Mm -hmm. and found that it was way harder than I ever thought it would be. It's, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I've been in that trying to produce TV show thing myself. And we were talking earlier tonight, you know, I did one show where I was the uh, supervising producer on this show for the Game Show Network. And we did 25 test shows and never (laughs) got the show on the air. It was just... It can be nightmarish. It really is. It's so like, that's a process that I got into and I've been working on all these years. And I have a hard time letting stuff go. You know, I've had so many times in my life, starting when I was young, I would set my sights on a goal and then achieve it. That the idea that you set your sights on a goal and can't achieve it, it's like, you know, maybe you got to move on yes. to a new goal at some point. But I I have a hard time dropping that, that, that dream, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, to this day, I've got deals right now with companies and things trying to get stuff made. Well, and you know, so much of uh, of success, if you want to call, you know, get, having a hit, if that's if that's a measure of success, uh, is time and timing. 
you yeah. know, a show that that could have been a hit last year came out the wrong time, or a show that's about to, you know, about to break. Nobody knows about it yet. These sort of things, and can you stick with it long enough that it's going to catch hold and all that sort of thing? And so, if you're in the world of pitching things and coming up with ideas and stuff, if that's what you do for years, there's no doubt that every time something hits, it's like I've got that in the file cabinet. Hold on, that's right. Yeah. And that's just normal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it, and it's a little bit like that sort of gambler thing that happens, and you know, when you're in, in in a casino and you go, man, I just know this is about to, I know the slot machine's about to hit, or those cards are going to warm up, or it is gambling. It, it really, really is. It's gambling. You have so little control over what happens. And statistically, the odds. What about just the odds? They're yeah. against you. Yeah. It is a a uh, improbability. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. I was listening to um, Rob Cordry on a podcast this week. And he's got a show that's up. Uh, he's got a pilot that's on a, uh, at ABC. And he says, you know, everybody tells me how funny the thing is. He says, but I know the odds. He says, I have no uh, preconceptions that this is ever going to get picked up. Even though I know it's funny, people keep telling me how funny it is. But I know I'm up against at least nine other really solid shows for, I think, one slot next season. He says, so the odds are completely against this show going. So I don't count on it at all. Um, which is just... It's sort of a weird, daunting way to think about life, whereas if, if you're just a guy that has a job, you know when you go to work the next day, your job's going to be there, pretty much, and your desk will be there, and you'll still be doing the same thing. You know, so it's two very different kinds of worlds. I just had a flash. Yes. I gave up getting laid for this. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm so sorry. sorry. I'm so sorry. The possibility of it, by the way. Let's not get too cocky. Well, I think the possibility... I gave up the possibility of getting I laid. I think the possibility was good. I think the possibility of... How you would feel tomorrow morning? Not so good. Not so good. That was bar light, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to go put my beer goggles on and see if she's still there. Excellent. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so, so let's just uh, kind of finish up by talking about you know you're uh, right now sort of touring up. Uh, the coast, the West Coast. Yeah, because I had this unusual thing happen with my property in Laurel Canyon. We talked about it earlier, and. Uh, I lived in a trailer for uh, 23 years on okay. the property, and January 1st, I got a notice to comply, 30-day notice to comply, get rid of the trailer. So I like to say I used to live in an Airstream or Airstream? Yeah, Airstream. And now I just live in air. <laughs> but uh, until I can build my house and figure out how to deal with this, I uh, decided to just get away, get away from it all and balance this tough time in my life with the most grandiose scenic beauty sure. of the of the West and the Big Sur and the one north and the trees, starting with Ojai, which is the closest, prettiest thing to L.A., by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, making my way to Santa Cruz and now here Mill Valley and next up Washington State. And it's interesting. I think you can do that. I, I think if uh, other people yeah. should try this. I, I don't know if I've invented it or if I'm just, <laughs> you know, figuring it out myself. But if you're going through a tough time in life, I think you can heal yourself with nature if you're someone like me that enjoys nature so much. Yeah. And or at least counteract it a little bit, like balance it out. Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, I um, I don't know if you know about this about me because I think this all happened way after I left uh, L.A. that first time. Is um, I've done a number of vision quests with some California Indians that I know, and I've done like eight of them. Wow. Where you just go off by yourself for four days at a time in the wilderness. And, uh, you, you know, you hike in, and then you come back together and do a sweat lodge ceremony. It's all very spiritual and whatnot, but it's amazingly healing. 
Uh, with the Indians or totally alone? Well, you go you go out with them, and then everyone kind of spreads out, and you find your own campsite for four days. Wow. And you just fast for four days. Wow. And then you come back together. Um, but the thing is, but you the thing is, you've got this skill set that allow, allows you to do this on the road because you can you know go to these places and do comedy, make a little money. And, you know, kind of keep yourself going, which is great. You're not just out there, you know, having to kill something to survive. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> but you are out That's there. right. It's my dad that gave me Yes, that. but you are trying to kill That's to survive. Oddly, ironically. Yes, <laughs> yes ironically. Um, and are, are your parents, are your folks? Uh, no, no, but dad's no longer with us. Uh, my mom lives in Florida. Okay. Uh, I've lost my, my stepmom too, which is oh, wow. a shame. Yeah. I was very close to her. Her, I really grew up and, um, I don't know, I lived with my my stepmom and my dad when I was a teenager, but I moved out from them when I was 15. Right, which right. did not freak my dad out, by the way, because he had grown up in the Depression and all that okay. stuff, and he had been on his own young, and it just somehow was not even an issue that I was okay. 15 and really hanging out with Steve Smith. Interesting. <laughs> he was a little older by the time I met Steve. That's true. I hope so. No, not much. I think if I had to have been 17, actually. I think so. I think that sounds about right, yeah. Um... Steve's, I interviewed... Yours, the club you managed was the first the comedy road runner. gig. Oh, was it really? Swannies. Okay, yeah, that absolutely. That was my first road gig. No kidding. Well, that's... Yeah. And there's tape of it, by the way. There's tape of it. Wow. I wish there was tape of my interview with Steve Smith for this show, but uh, I lost the hard drive that I had it on. I have to re-interview him, by the way. Uh, that's, that's why my listeners don't know who he is. Um, or, or anybody else who actually goes to see comedy on, on solid on ground. On land, on land. He only entertains on cruise ships these days. Um... Anyway, uh, it's been great catching up with you, and if you get a chance to see Mark Price in a, in a comedy club or room near you... This last summer, in local Los Angeles television, I hosted a show called CNN, Comedians News Network. Okay. And we had Alan Havey, nice. and some Kira Sultanovich, and Matt... Wine. Sure, my Weinhold. Absolutely. My Weinhold, thank you for yeah, he, that he, his last name. He was just on this show a few episodes ago. Funny dude. Love funny guy. Yeah, Flip absolutely. Schultz, we had some really funny people on. And uh, kind of like you, you love comedians oh, in the comedy world. Crazy about I do too, and so we'll see what's next. But chances are it'll have something to do with comedians and comedy. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck here. It's my, you know, what else am I going to do really? Well, when you make your way back down the West Coast and uh, get back in L.A., let's uh, let's uh, talk again and see how things are going. I'm glad things are so wonderful for you. I'm glad you live in Fantasy Village. It's uh, it, paradise. Yeah, it's nice up here. It's nice up here. But I got to tell you, I do miss L.A. Really? Strange as that might seem. Yeah. I always wonder when I pass through these beautiful places how long it would take before I would miss L.A. Um, it kind of depends, I guess, what you're doing. But for me, it uh, it was um, there's a vibrant writing community if you tap into it in LA in terms of being able to sit with people and go, Hey, I got this idea for a show or I got this idea as a scene that's not working. And you, you know, you've got a bunch of buddies that are drinking coffee in the same place you are and they're all doing the same thing. They may not be writers, but they're a producer, they're an actor whatnot. So you can bounce here. You can't, you can bounce ideas off people, but they don't really have the same no showbiz. Really. Well, yeah, there's no framework for what right. they're doing. The scene might be funny to them, but they can't tell you how to fix a joke generally. You know, or why something's not working. They can't deconstruct it. So that's what I miss is that, that sort of professional interaction you can have in, in that town. Now, when you're so close to a great city um, in Mill Valley, you're so close to San Francisco. Yeah, literally. How often do you go? 
Oh, I that get, not enough, right? Uh, uh, well, no. I go. I'm, first of all, I go into the city at least once a week because oh, uh, I have grandkids and they live in the city. Okay. So uh, we watch my wife and I watch them every Saturday. Um, but I don't go to the comedy clubs anymore uh, in the city. Uh, I because I'm doing this new show I told you about earlier. Uh, I am now sort of getting in a, a little bit the small theater scene because that's where we're putting those things up. But uh, I am nowhere near connected like I used to be in comedy uh, in this town. Because I think people move into the mountains within proximity to a great city thinking, hey, I can go there anytime I want. That's and true. then they never bother because they get, like me, comfortable in that's their true. mountains. But, but, of course, from here we have a cover charge to get into the city. That's probably Yeah, it costs six, six bucks every time I want to go in. And a two-drink minimum, <laughs> which is weird when you're driving. Um, but, uh, no, I get in I get in pretty frequently. Um, but not for, like, entertainment much anymore. I mean, we have everything out here, all movies and things like that. They have movies out here. Uh, fl- flush toilets, yeah, elevators. Come and, a long way. Yeah, it's very nice. And then, of course, Mark Pitt's show. We've got uh, great name comedians every Tuesday night, which is uh, an unusual thing for Marin, but it's been uh, been doing very well. It's unusual course, thing for any town to really have a show of that caliber every Tuesday. He does a good job of bringing top people in. He I does, hope people appreciate it he, here. It seems they do. It I seems they understand. I think they do. And, yeah. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for talking to me. And uh, now go back to that bar and see if you can't uh, make something happen. Love your guts. He's had some tough times, my old buddy Mark. Follow him on Twitter at, at @skippyties and look for him appearing live in a club near you soon. Our ambassador to the middle, Will Durst, looks at the Tangle Tango, in which our intrepid correspondent tries desperately to extricate himself from the sticky embrace of two of America's least favorite organizations. Take it away, Will. Hey, guys. Will Durst here with a few choice words about the IRS conducting audits on Tea Party-affiliated organizations. And those words are, what's the big deal? Why is everybody so upset? Wouldn't you sort of expect that? The Tea Party is vehemently anti-tax, while the IRS is, for the lack of a better phrase, pro-tax. The two are natural enemies, like the mongoose and the cobra, sheep and wolves, IT support, and everybody else on the frickin' planet. The Tea Party's stated goal is to shrink the government and get rid of the IRS. Now, don't you think that people whose philosophy preaches something is evil might garner a bit of extra scrutiny from the folks whose jobs they're threatening? The same way a legalized pot bumper sticker might prompt a cop to sniff the air inside a car when he stops it. That's not profiling, that's human nature. A reflex. Common sense. Besides, we're not talking about two beloved groups here. The Tea Party versus the IRS. It's a battle of the bottom. A fight between Stinky and Poopy. And anybody caught in the middle is destined to emerge with a few of the sticky bits all over them. Out of 296 applicants, not one Tea Party organization was denied nonprofit status. The charges boil down to the IRS making things difficult. Imagine that. An inconvenient interaction with the government. Next, you'll tell me insurance companies employ delaying tactics. Whoever this comes as a surprise to obviously hasn't been paying attention to Congress for the last four and a half years. But the Tea Party is waving their victimization as a flag of honor and are re-energized, which may be the last thing the Obama administration needs. As a matter of fact, the only people dreading it more would be the rest of the Republican Party. For Suckatash, the podcast of comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. Get even more laughs at willdurst.com. You can also read his tweets at Will Durst on Twitter 
And if you're in the San Francisco area, his one-man show that's currently running at the, Mar- at the Marsh Theater on Tuesday nights, I think is up through June 25th and could well be extended. I was going to tell you more about his show this uh, episode of Succotash, but I will save it for the next one. But to check out willdurst.com for more information, and there's a link to uh, his show information where you can get tickets and whatnot up at the succotashshow.com. Ah, Epi 60, we hardly knew ye. Hope you had a good time. See you next time on Epi 61, where I'll have more comedy podcast clips, an interview with the comedy film nerds and LA Podcast Festival organizer Graham Elwood, and we'll catch up with Michael Celestino, who's making another Kickstarter bid for his documentary, That's Not Funny. Plus, we will have a, uh, a visit with our friend Bill Haywatt with another boozing with Bill. Now, isn't all that good stuff worth passing the succotash for? You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pats. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com, on iTunes, or on Stitcher Smart Radio. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Succotash Show, email us at marc at SuccotashShow.com, or call into the Succotash hotline at our toll call number, 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Succotash. Goodbye. With any dish, you want to start it with hot pans. That's basically the trick. So with a scallop dish, we always use a non. You don't want to use a nonstick pan because you're not going to get a hard sear on your scallop. And that's where all the flavor is. So we have a hot pan. We add olive oil. Splash of olive oil. Let the pan get hot. Let the oil get hot. Now, ideally, we'd use dry. The scallops would be dried on linen. Unfortunately. In this situation, we can't do that. So, what we will do, get our scallops in. We want, make sure when you, you'll hear them. And a scallop is, is round, like, so you want to get them on the, on the flat bottom side, which is somewhat hard to do in this situation, but we'll make do. Always season, a little salt, a little pepper. Okay, while that's searing, I have to go over here now. Quite all right. So, again, hot pan, oil, we'll render in some bacon, get that going, mushrooms as well. Your pan will tell you what it's doing, it's sizzling, sounding good, that's a good sign. Alright, now I need spinach please, may I? Thank you. Again, seasoned. We have bacon in there already, so it's a little bit salty, just a little bit. By now, the scallops, getting a sear, not quite ready. If it's sticking, it's not ready to come off the pan. Add a little butter. 
Butter's always great for flavor, right? Everyone loves butter. Love butter. <laughs> Sorry for all those vegans out there. There, this one has a nice hard sear. There we go. Okay, we're going to turn the heat down on that. Let it cook through. Meanwhile, our succotash is almost there. It's one of Wiltar spinach. I need a hotter one. Switch over, get this some heat on this thing. Looks delicious. <laughs> Thank you. It's such a simple recipe, you could really just cook it anywhere. It is, absolutely. You know, two pans, all you're doing is just a quick sear. You don't, and then this one, you're only wilting. Mostly everything is already cooked for you, so yeah, it's really easy. If you can cook bacon, you can cook this dish. Well, I'm a terrible cook. And I sometimes have people over and I never know what to cook because I'm afraid I'm going to wreck it. So this is perfect for me. Wonderful. All right. Well, we're ready to go to the plate. So I have three for you guys. So would you like to try this dish? Absolutely. All right. Here we go. There you are, And of course, one for you and your crew. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. There you are. Well, it looks fantastic. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. It looks amazing. I can't wait to try it. So we have a sea scallop here with a spinach succotash. And it's got corn and mushrooms. And now I get to try it. Richard made it for us. I get to see worthy of a dinner party. Definitely something, a recipe to make at home. So good and so simple. This is Wandering Knuckling saying, eat up. Love your guts.